Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hi, this is Jamie Flam, and you are tuned into Gatekeeper, a podcast talking to decision makers in the world of comedy and beyond about why they say yes and no, and of course, talking to artists about the opportunities they've had and that they want and their ups and downs and struggles and... Funny sound go down, 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 down. Ah, I forgot about that fun little sound effect that we created in episode, I don't know, 20, 15? There's so many of them now. But it really is a great illustration of the ups and downs. So thank you, Andrew, for putting that in. This is the greatest podcast ever! <laughs> well, we got ourselves a doozy of an episode coming up. I had a great conversation with a fella named Jeff Cohen. Now we all know a Jeff Cohen. I think there are 7 million Jeff Cohens in the world. But what makes this Jeff Cohen special? He's an entertainment lawyer who's working with some of the biggest names in comedy. And he recently wrote a book about making deals published by the American Bar Association that is a must-read for anyone in the entertainment business. Now I know what you're thinking. Just another lawyer? Boring. Legalese. Blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? This Jeff Cohen is also different because he was a goonie. So what is a goonie, you're asking yourself? If you don't know what a goonie is, a goonie never says die, which I believe is also the state motto for New Hampshire. And if you were a child of the 80s like I was, this was and still is one of the best movies of all time. But maybe you're a young listener and you're unfamiliar with the movie Goonies. It's the classic story of a bunch of kids that have a little kind of gang kind of thing and and they're going to lose their house and neighborhood to a golf course and they need to find money to make it not happen. So they end up in a cave being chased by some evil goons and then they have to solve puzzles and these caves to make them survive and one of the kids tries to kiss the other and they kiss and braces and a, a big mentally challenged and deformed character that probably wouldn't be allowed to be in a movie today but god bless it for making the cut and pirate ships and finding gold and one-eyed willy and an asian kid that makes crazy gadgets yes a tale as old as time itself and jeff played lawrence chunk cohen begging the question what came first the chicken or the egg and in the case of chunk uh, i would say that the chicken and the egg came at the exact same time because he was chubby of course famous for the truffle shuffle and i can go on and on and so i will he has this one scene and it's a classic scene where he's talking about we gotta get to it oh we gotta okay anyway watch the goonies it's available for download on the internet For now, we're going to get to talking about Jeff and talk about his path from being a child actor to being one of the top entertainment lawyers working in the industry today. You're going to learn a lot from this episode, so enjoy. Welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flamman. I am the Gatekeeper. They put a cool effect on that. Wow. Uh, okay, can I do it? Can I use the effect? Yeah, please. 
I'm the gatekeeper. Note to Andrew, our sound engineer, just don't do anything for his. So it sounds awkward. Oh, wow. This is Jeff Cohen that you are here by here with me. Thank you. Jeff Cohen, who amongst so many accolades, um, I'm handi- I'm st- uh, holding in my hand right now, The Dealmaker's Ten Commandments, the essential tools for business forged in the trenches of Hollywood that he wrote. That's right, baby. Um, which I'm just going to read the back real quick. The Dealmaker's Ten Commandments are a practical, no-nonsense methodology for negotiating deals, managing your time, and handling crisis all at the highest level. And you know about this because you are a high-level entertainment lawyer. Legal eagle. It's not easy. It's not easy. No, and you're here because A, we're friends. Yep. But B, um, you are specifically have a lot of comedy clients and work in a lot of the comedy world. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, no, thank you. Yeah. uh, So the book, Dealmaker's Ten Commandments, uh, it's published by the American Bar Association, but it is a general business book. Um, It's on Amazon. Um, and it's all about, you know, negotiating deals, managing your time, handling crisis. Um, I've had a law firm, uh, Cohen Gardner LLP in Beverly Hills since 02, since the world was young. Um, and I was six feet tall, full head of hair, so long, long time ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just kind of all the lessons I've learned about negotiating deals for our clients. Our law firm, Cohen Gardner, is a uh, transactional law firm. So we negotiate deals for actors and writers and producers and directors and production companies and comics. Uh, and uh, we make deals. So it's just kind of taking the general rules that we use uh, you know, for scenarios that occur regarding deals when everything goes sideways and uh, my life philosophy in general. So, yeah. What is your life philosophy in general? Uh, let's see. Um, well, um, it's funny. So the deal, there's 10 commandments, spoiler alert in the, in the, <laughs> deal, in the deal makers, 10 commandments. Um, the, uh, and in the book, I begin it with a warning that, um, there's a saying, uh, good and great are seldom the same man, meaning what it takes to be a good person is oftentimes separate from what it takes to be a great person. And, you know, I basically say, you know, the Ten Commandments are for business. It's not for personal. Because as we know, show business can be very, or any business for that matter, can be very rough. So Dealmaker's Commandment 1, which I stole, I uh, give him credit, so I guess it's not stealing, uh, from Niccolo Machiavelli who wrote a great book called The Prince back in the 1500s, um, it's better to be feared uh, than loved because people fear you because they have to and they love you because they want to. So uh, at least, I guess it's not a life philosophy, but kind of a business philosophy of kind of operating from a position of power, you know? I only know you in a loving relationship. So behind closed doors, you're like a fierce Machiavellian killer. Um, I think yeah, that was a I'm a little gangsta, dude. You, come on, we're both Valley guys. We, we, I mean, we've got, you know, come on. Oh, I meant to say that at the top of the show. We're we're, we're brothers in Valley. That's right. Taft Toreadors and Granada Highlanders. Yeah, go awesome. Toreadors, big T. Yeah, Valley Jewish. Yeah, it's uh, important. I mean, yeah, of I, course. Yeah, I thought that was a prereq. I thought you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, dude. You, you, I mean, Valley Valley Jews. Even if you're not a Jew, they make you Jew. You got to be a Jew. It's part yeah. of the thing. That's a thing. We have great delis. Weilers, Brent's. I don't know Weilers. Oh, Weilers is great. Is Better than Brent's though. <sighs> okay, we're the, gonna, the one we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it. The one right, upside I'm, I'm of someone, deadly. the one upside of anyone dying, um, in your family, if you're from the valley, <laughs> is that there will be Brent's <laughs> at the funeral. Delicious. Yeah, it's the best. Maybe you like pastrami. Maybe you like a little corned beef. There'll be matzo ball soup. 
There'll be some rye. Black and white cookie. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes that. Um, okay. Brent's is dynamite, but you know what, man? Uh, I'm a misanthrope and there's just the line. I don't want to oh, wait right. in that line. I don't want to make a big thing. I want to go to a place. <laughs> I'd rather go to a deli that's like eight and a half, like an eight and a half with no weight than one that's a 10 and it's going to be a whole mishagas. <laughs> There it goes. It's a little Yiddish there. For, that's a gatekeeper first. Yes. <laughs> that's the way you get in the gate. The key, the, I, I've just, I've, I've, I've let the secret go to any gatekeeper. Just go, Mishigas. And then they got to let you're you in. You're in the door. That's it. It's like open And that's sesame. actually looking through the book. That's rule number three. It is number, well, again, commandment alert. number three. Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> They're supposed to buy the book. Yes. Dealmaker's commandment one, better to be feared than loved. Dealmaker's commandment three, Mishigas. <laughs> So yeah, feel good about that. And so we'll go back, we'll going back a little bit and yep. we'll go back to a lot of stuff, but um, you were a child Wait, actor. We can't, we can't talk about delis more. <laughs> then you got Cantor's, then you got the, you know, the city delis. Well, what do you, where does Cantor's rank up for you? <sighs> they got the kibitz room. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, like when you can have a full bar uh, for the uninitiated, the kibitz room is uh, uh, basically a, a, a kind of a dive bar connected to Cantor's. So not only uh, can you, um, you know, get smashed for, you know, $14 uh, uh, for the whole night, um, you have access to a full deli menu and a bakery counter, which is pretty dangerous. Yeah. And lots of... Um Semi-notable people. I mean, Guns N' Roses got yeah, their start there. For sure. Yeah, yeah. There's all this cool, like, Guns N' Roses used to hang out there in the 80s and such. Anyways, mm-hmm. it's great. So, and then um, one more, Langers. Langers. Interesting how they do the bread. You know what I mean? Because Is well, it different? Well, I, uh, it, it's uh, some of my clients who are like, you know, uh, foodies and, and uh, you know, kind of chefs and things like that. Um, I guess Langers is interesting because... Whereas like a Katz's sandwich is going to be a ton of meat and like little baby bread, like uh, Langer's is like more, is like thicker bread, mm. less meat. Mm. Anyways, <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically like the, the, the audience that we're speaking to right now is literally 18 people. It's like literally 18, 87 year old Jewish uh, relatives. No, I think there's somewhere. some young comics who can't afford deli even talk. one sandwich. Wait, this is the gatekeeper? I thought this was deli talk. Cause that's, that's how I got him in here. <laughs> He's like, oh, I have it's to talk not, about business? It's not deli talk? Anyways, I'm sorry. Yes, back to the gatekeeping. <laughs> Mishigas. So, okay, you were a child actor. Uh, I was the child actor. You were the yeah, child I mean, actor. Cultural icon. I mean, like, I don't... Child actor sounds like I did, like, a hot dog commercial or something. Come on, buddy. Give me some props here. Did you do a hot dog commercial? I did do a hot dog commercial, actually, now that I... Yeah, it was, uh, it was, which is, which, uh, yes, I did, I did do a hot dog commercial. Truly? Like Oscar Mayer? Like, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a national. It was a Thorn Apple Valley hot dog. It was, a, it was, I think, a regional. So I wasn't, you know, it's when you're a fat kid, it's hard to get a national food related commercial because people don't want to say that when you eat your food, you're going to be, your kid's going to be a fatty, just like this. <laughs> This little chunky bastard right here. You know what I mean? So I was happy to get a regional hot dog commercial. Was that the first break? Uh, No. You know, it's funny. Um, You know, it's funny. I think the first, okay. So uh, kid actor. uh, Because you wanted to, because your parents wanted you. Like, how does that start? I mean, I was, I mean, I grew up um, again, Valley, you know, uh, you know, we had on channel five, we had the family film festival on Saturday and Sunday. Yes. Tom Hatton. Popeye. Prop dude. Oh man. We had Popeye cartoons, little rascals, shorts, three stooges. Uh, and I loved, you know, I love that. And I was like, Oh, they're funny. You know what I mean? And I was a little fat kid and I loved Spanky from the three, st- from, uh, um, the rascals from little rascals. Cause he's this little fat kid 
and uh, he was kind of the boss and he was really cool. And I was like, hey, you know, life goals. I'm like, that's I want his job. I want to be the little fat, cool kid, you know, who's running stuff. You know, I want to be that guy. Um, so I was always kind of a ham. And uh, it was funny. One of the first significant things I ever did, I didn't actually do, do anything significant, but I guess one of the first roles I got, um, it was interesting. Uh, so I was a little kid, probably eight years old. And um, Ron Howard was directing a pilot for NBC. And not only was it Ron Howard, but it was Ron Howard and, oh my God, I'm going to forget his name. Uh, he, he played Potsy. Oh God. Um, should we go to the Google? So I got to go to the Google. I still want to come up with it. Um, our An- Anson, Anson. Oh, I'm, yep. I'm a schmuck. Yep. Anson Williams. Anson. So it was this tiny little pilot for NBC and, and I, you know, I read for the directors and it was co-directed by, you know, by Richie and Potsy. And I loved happy days. And I didn't, you know, I was like, cared less about getting the part. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go get to meet Richie and, and Potsy. So, uh, I did. And, um, I did that. I did that. And then kind of, you know, all the eighties sitcoms, good, bad, and, and otherwise from (laughs) a special episode of Webster, uh, to facts of life to, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah. Quick aside. Yeah. We had lunch yesterday. I think so. And we spoke about a show called Growing Pains. Growing Pains. Yeah, I know. Bummer. Alan Thicke passed away last night. I know. What a bummer. Um, I didn't know him, um, but it's certainly a bummer and a surprise. And he looked great. You know? Yeah. He looked great. Look good. Huh? You know? We're fucked. <laughs> I didn't mean to throw him. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point, man. Like, 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 it's like, oh man, if he gets it, then it's like, what, what does it say about me, dude? Like, But it's pretty uh, random uh, uh, that, uh. that Growing Pains would be, was a topic of a conversation and then hours later. Well, we got to be careful what we talk about now, man. I know. I don't want to jinx anything I think else. Anson Williams is Oh, uh, no, no. Anson's good, man. Anson's good. Works out on the treadmill. I see him at, uh, at the LA Fitness that I go to yeah. by the Miracle Mile. He's great. He's, Anson's he's good. good. And dude, Ron Howard. I mean, this guy's amazing. So you auditioned for them. It goes oh, yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, so it got the part and then just kind of did all that 80s kids stuff. Um, eventually did a film called The Goonies, um, which was awesome. And it was, you know, Richard Donner, who's the coolest guy of all time, um, you know, directed it. And so, you know, Dick Donner directed Superman and The Omen and all the Lethal Weapons and produced, uh, you know, um, uh, X-Men you know, with his wife, Lauren Schuler Donner, who's an amazing producer. And then Spielberg, uh, was the EP of Goonies and, and wrote the story, uh, with, uh, Chris Columbus. Um, so it was a great experience, man. It was really cool, you know? And it's so iconic. Yeah. As you know, what do you do? <laughs> what, do, do, you do? You do? what do you do? And, it's, I do yeah. and the internet had had to like reinvented or resurfaced like all of this hype around it. Like we're these eighties, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it it's, it's, <laughs> it's weird, man. It's weird. You know, like, um, it's like you walk down the street and like, you see somebody with like a truffle shuffle shirt on, like, 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 Hey, <laughs> 10 year old, like, Hey, 10 year old me. How you doing there, buddy? What's How going weird on? Is that? Uh, what I'm excited about, this is what I'm excited about. Uh, it's, uh, um, uh, they, they, um, they're making a Goonie slot machine. Uh, it, so, and I've actually seen like online, they have some footage of it and that's cool. I want to win that jackpot. I want to win like the chunk truffle oh, shuffle God, jackpot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that'd be cool. It seems like it, they're late to the game. It seems like everything has been a slot machine. Well, I guess it's like, I guess there's a lot of like nostalgia now, you know, especially now, especially <laughs> you know, we, now. we need to look back to the happy old days, I suppose, you know? So how soon after Goonies did you, uh, 
finish acting. Uh, it was puberty actually that finished me. So it was, uh, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, uh, basically puberty is like, you know, basically it, it's, it's the, the childhood actor's nemesis. You know what I mean? It's like the Achilles tendon. If you're like a great running back or something, if that gets you, you're, you're doomed. Um, no, I mean, I loved acting and it was awesome. Uh, but, and I was this cute little chubby kid, but I looked different. You know, you hit puberty, you look different, you get some acne, start to thin out. Um, I wasn't fat enough to play the fat kid uh, parts anymore. So it was really hard. I mean, I was really heartbroken because that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be spanky. I wanted to do that. So I had to figure something else out. Now I was very fortunate and that I grew up in LA. Um, and some of the friends that I had met, you know, um, you know, as I was growing up as an actor, uh, helped me out. So in my case, it was the director of Goonies, a guy named Richard Donner, um, who's the best. And he took Mender's wing and it kind of in high school when I couldn't get work anymore, he let me work for him as a production assistant. Cool. And, and he's like, Hey kid, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be an actor, Dick. And he's like, Oh, that's stupid. Don't be an actor. You're not going to be an actor. He's like, come here, learn about, you know, the other side of show business. And he was right. You know, uh, I learned, you know, what producers do. I learned what directors do. I learned, uh, you know, what agents do and studio executives. And I kind of developed a love for the business on the other side of it. Um, Cause I loved, you know, show business still do. I think, you know, culture is, you know, kind of the highest aim of civilization. That's what we remember when we look back at the Romans. I and mean, when we look back at the Greeks, you know, it's like, oh, what were their paintings? What were their, you know, plays? What were their statues? Um, so I wanted to find a way that I could help, you know, creative people do really cool stuff. And, you know, I think entertainment law uh, kind of made sense for me because, uh, I mean, I think there's so much bullshit in show business and all business, but in show business specifically, part of the culture. Um, and, uh, what I love about being an entertainment lawyer is it's like my job to kind of take what's floating out there deal wise and put it on a piece of paper. And the piece of paper is the truth. So in kind of this fuzzy industry, I'm able to help negotiate and, you know, kind of help put together kind of the artistic truth, at least from a business perspective of what's going on and, you know, try to protect my clients and help them create something awesome. And I'm sure this is a question that a lot of people have, you know, if, if a comedian has an agent and a manager, what's the difference between what an agent does and a manager and, sure. a, and a, a lawyer? Sure. Of course. Um, you know, the, and these are all kind of fuzzy lines in the sense of, you know, different reps do different things depending on who the person is. <clears throat> kind of the, the big idea is that an agent uh, is supposed to be able to kind of get you the job. You know, uh, and that's whether you're, you know, uh, trying out to be a regular in a television series or, you know, there's personal appearance agents who help book your, you know, live performance. Um, but the big kind of the, the key thing that an agent does is get you work. Um, and they also legally are allowed to negotiate. Um, and for most deals, that's totally fine because most deals are kind of uh, adhere to a format, you know, Oh, like, you know, what's the percentage guarantee, you know, what's the percentage, what's the guarantee, et cetera, et cetera. What are the amenities? You know, what's the level of travel that is, you know, uh, straightforward enough that an agent can handle it. Um, the, you know, a manager, um, basically a manager has the ability to produce. So that's kind of their superpower. Um, and a manager, uh, is basically kind of more hands-on. A manager will have less clients than an agent. An agent will kind of have a larger roster of clients that they're out trying to pitch to various parts of the industry. A manager will usually have a smaller list. 
uh, and they can they can kind of help the client, you know, develop their act, develop their material. Um, you know, they're kind of more personally involved uh, with the artist artistically. Um, and again, kind of the superpower of the managers, the manager can produce. So if you're an artist and you've created a show, you want your manager to be a producer um, because then you have, you know, kind of extra protection and an extra voice in the room when you're trying to kind of put forth your your vision. Um, uh, an agent's superpower is the ability to package. Um, basically, uh, let's say there's a big agency like CAA or, you know, UTA or William Morris, et cetera, et cetera. Um, ICM. So when I, uh, now I have to list all the agencies. Gersh is great. Uh, you know, um, there's all kinds of great APAs. Awesome. Of course. Uh, I don't want to offend any of my agent friends. Um, so basically if an agency has enough elements in a show, so like, let's say it's a television series and they have the, the main writer and they have the director and they have the key piece of talent. Um, when they put that, all of those elements together, they get a package fee. Meaning that instead of commissioning 10% of their clients, they get a percentage of the budget, a percentage of the profits of the show. And that that is usually far more profitable for them than commissioning the client. So, uh, you know, the superpower of the agent is the ability to package and they always should sell. The superpower of the manager is the ability to produce. Um, and, you know, it's a very it's a very intimate relationship with with the talent. So, so creatively making sure you're on the same w- wavelength, that's important. And uh, kind of, you know, the superpower of the uh, lawyer is the ability to negotiate really complex deals. And the lawyer's in an interesting place because we don't have to sell, right? So like, it's like anytime anybody says, you know, if someone says to you, your lawyer's the nicest guy, fire that lawyer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's like, uh, you know, we don't have to, you know, go in aggressively fight a deal on Monday and then try to sell that same executive a project on Tuesday, you know? So it's kind of our job to be the hard asses and to say, Hey, wait a minute, you know, this was promised, but the contract says this, you know, we've done seven other deals with you guys in the past 45 days. And, you know, we know that you give this, this, and this. So basically, um, the lawyer comes in when a deal is complex enough that, you know, and the client hopefully has enough leverage where we can actually do some damage. A deal that would be considerably complex is if you're, you know, a performer and you create a script and you sell the script uh, and you're going to be an executive producer, you're going to be talent, uh, you're going to be a writer. Um, you know, uh, those deals are, they have enough moving pieces and different sources of revenue from profit participation and how that's defined and calculated to, are you attached, you know, uh, to the show? If it moves forward, can they throw you off? Um, you know, are, you know, are you going to get a logo credit for your company? Are you going to be the executive producer? What if there's a spinoff series? Are you attached to that? So, you know, basically when a deal becomes complex enough and there is leverage for the client, then an attorney can be helpful. And at what point? In a comic or entertainer's uh, career, does that, is it just the first deal that requires that? Then how would they know to go to you versus any other lawyer? Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, you mean like having a lawyer just generally versus, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I think it's good, you know, it's a small community. You know what I mean? And you're going to want somebody who your, you know, manager is comfortable with and has a relationship with hopefully and your, and your agent, you know, hopefully does as well. Um, but you know, uh, I mean, for me, for me, the key thing, you know, that, that a lawyer has to have relationship wise with their client is the ability to just be completely honest. 
You know what I mean? Um, cause you need, you need a lawyer who's not going to candy coat things. Who's not going to say, Hey, you know, everything's great if it's, you know, terrible or the deal's fine if it's not, you know? And if you, if you don't have a relationship with a client where you can be completely straightforward with them and tell them your thoughts, then they're, they're not your client. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, people like meet each other all kinds of different ways, of course, whether it's at events or, you know, at the improv or, or whatever, you know, Montreal comedy festival or whatever. Um, but I think having a relationship with a lawyer early on can be helpful, even if, you know, there's not a deal for them to do, you know, just to kind of begin that, you know, relationship, you know, and, and just kind of to get their take on stuff generally, it's kind of like, and kind of seeing if you, if you vibe with someone. So, you know, it's, I guess it's just kind of a natural process. Do you ever, I mean, as far as your own, um, uh, client list sure. and it's a great client client list. Um, and we're not going to talk about who they are. Yes. And attorney can, client privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you. But they're all great. I rep Chunk from the Goonies. <laughs> He's looking for work um, since 1988. Well, you booked him for this podcast. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, waiting for the check. I mean, where's the dough, man? But how much? I mean, because I mean, Michigas. how much does your own taste? Um, how important is that to you? Um, and is it ultimately even important in the, as, as far as a lawyer? Sure. Um, well, yeah, yeah. No, no. That that that's. It's interesting because, I mean, our role is not creative, right? You know, our, our role is to be creative with the deal, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, it's interesting, you know, different people have different feelings about it. I mean, I think because I was a kid actor, because I was kind of on the other side of it for a time, um, for me, you know, when I deal with clients, it's not just academic. I mean, I, I have some idea of the fear. I have some idea of the challenge and also how precarious it is. You know what I mean? When you have an opportunity, you know, and, and, you know, I kind of have a sense of like how hard it was to get there in the first place, mm -hmm. you know, by the time the deal gets to me, wow, somebody had to develop it. You know, somebody had to, you know, to attach the right people, you know, you know, uh, amend it, amend it, you know, improve it, sell it to get somebody to buy in a competitive environment. So I realized that by the time it gets to me, you know, a lot has gone into it. Um, I mean, I think generally, uh, I know, you know, what I love about show business kind of more than anything really is that everybody's interesting. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I do. You know, like w whether you fight against them or whether they're on your side or the other side, like everyone's kind of interesting. So it's not, bo it's not boring mm -hmm. in a short life. You know, it's, it's, you don't want to be bored. So it's not boring. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I guess, you know, there's some clients artistically that I'm like, you know, more of a fan of than the other, you know, per se. Um, you know, I just, I just like smart people. I think it's interesting. And I think being in this business and to succeed, you have to be, you know, pretty bright. I would say for the most part. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things in your book that we can talk about yes. is managing your time. Managing your time. And productivity. That's a, a thing that artists tend to struggle with. I certainly identify sure. with that. So, Well, I would say I'd put it in two, in two categories. Um, one is time management, time management and one is crisis management. Um, you know, as an artist, uh, you know, or as a professional, you know, uh, your time is your commodity that's ultimately what you're selling. You know, when, when you're an actor and you're getting paid, you know, 5 million bucks to do this motion picture and they need you there for eight weeks or whatever, like it's because your time is that valuable. 
you know, um, or if you're an actor, uh, you know, or showrunner and you're writing a series and you're getting paid, you know, 75 grand a week, um, it's because your time is that valuable, you know, that they need your intellect on this, you know? So I think managing your time efficiently is really, really important. And there's that idea that, you know, I don't know the secret of success, but I know the secret of failure, which is trying to make everyone else happy. It's very easy for us as people pleasers, you know, and a lot of performers, we are, you know, yep. you know, we're our people pleasers, you know, you want to make the audience happy, um, but you can be spread so thin uh, that you kind of just self-sabotage, you know? So I think kind of, you know, being ruthless and setting your priorities, what makes sense to you, what matters to you, that's really important. The second side of that is I would say crisis management. Because, you know, our business, <laughs> I mean, it, there's ups and crises? downs. Crises? <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's all about managing, you know, crisis, really. Um, you know, because you're dealing with an audience. Audiences are fickle. Um, you know, uh, you know, corporations, especially at the studios, you know, a ton of, you know, changeover. Agencies, you know, grow and shrink and, you know, uh, tastes, you know, are here and there. So um, the methodology I've developed <clears throat> is that, okay, if something's going really sideways, something's going, you know, really wrong, uh, three steps. Step one, don't panic. Step two, stop the bleeding. Step, step three, don't compound the error. So something's going really wrong, right? Um, you're either going to rely on your training or you're going to rely on your instincts, and if you rely on your instincts, it's probably going to be bad. You're probably just going to bolt, scream, and run into the middle of traffic or right into enemy fire, right? <laughs> so you, you have to brush aside your instincts and go with your training. So if something's going wrong, I always say, step one, I breathe. Breathe in, breathe out. Um, don't panic. Panicking never helps. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a scenario is never fixed through panicking. So whatever it, whatever it is, just don't panic. Breathe, think, don't panic. Step two, stop the bleeding. If there's a way to stop what's going wrong, stop it. And this is distinct from trying to fix it. This step is not about fixing the problem. This step is about, okay, uh, you know, what's going on? What is the bleeding? How can I stop it? Is there a way for me to kind of stop the damage from getting worse? Step three is don't compound the error. Meaning that the next step that you take, you have to be very thoughtful. Is it something that's going to make things worse? Because oftentimes that's how a disaster occurs. You know what I mean? You buy stocks in the stock market, they're starting to drop. You could sell, but you're like, uh, no, <laughs> I'm going to buy three times as many right now. You know what I mean? I have to make all those losses back, you know? Um, so it's basically, it's those three steps. Step one, don't panic. Step two, stop the bleeding. Step three, don't compound the error. And as simple as that sounds, that has saved my ass <laughs> and the ass of many a client uh, over the 15 years of my law firm. So uh, I would say time, uh, time management and crisis management, having a good system for both of those is key to being an effective uh, professional and, and performer. For you personally, I mean, mm -hmm. what is your daily routine? Because you seem like you're very <clears throat> methodical about how sure. you live your life. Um, well, there's, I would say, I start with binge drinking, um, you know. Okay, some, good, good, some, good. Some quiet weeping. Mm-hmm. And the, this is the first thing in the morning. Yeah, yeah, I like to do it. Great. You know, I like to curl up on the, you know, on the floor, kitchen floor. Drink and cry. Uh, and then I weep. There's some kind of, there's kind of a, kind of a quiet weeping. 
You know what I mean? Sure. Not like, not blubbery. Yeah. yeah. Not stupid and blubbery. And like, and like kind of a little shaking, a little oh, yeah. rock, more of a rocking. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I like I'm doing right now. <laughs> exactly. Kind of a rocking, uh, like I, like I'm going to, like I'm doing now. Uh, so, uh, no, but yeah, but I actually think routine, I mean, for me, I'm kind of weird about it. Like routine is really important. Um, especially because, you know, and it's funny, there's actually even kind of a, a contractual, you know, there's kind of a contractual side to this as well. I think with the artists and artists get a lot of, you know, flack for this, like you'll have crazy writers, you know, that are famous in the back of a contract of like, you know, especially on the road, like, well, I need, you know, a bottle of this and I need, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, four Perrier's and I need a this and the temperature needs to be this and all, all of the kind of very specific things that an artist wants. But when you think about how challenging it is to be a performer, and how, and how, when they get on that stage, you know, or when that camera rolls, they're shooting themselves out of a cannon. You know what I mean? They are very, very vulnerable. So if they need kind of, you know, a very elaborate, you know, and stable environment, you know, in their dressing room and their travel so that they can be in the right headspace to perform, I think it's fine. And the ultimate example, um, um, you, pro- you probably know this, that, you know, there's always that kind of mythology of like the bowl of all yellow M&Ms or something like that. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about that? Yep. It's usually green. Okay. Green. Uh, there you go. So, so, um, you know, there's, there's kind of the story of like, and I forget, was the band, was it ACDC or Van Halen or is one of those big, like kind of seventies bands, right? Anyways, so sticks. yeah, okay, there we go. Let's say sticks. Uh, it wasn't Steely Dan because uh, that that was just just they're blow. red. They're red M M&M. and M. Tons of blow, aka Coke. I, I love Steely Dan, by the way. So I'm not they're great. Donald Fagan, Walter Becker. If you're listening to this, they're big fans not. of this. I I'm wasn't. I didn't mean to take the name of the Dan in vain. I love you guys. I'm in love with you guys a lot. Um, but basically, so there was like this really elaborate artist, musical artist, you know, writer about, Oh, we need, you know, this many bottles of this and we need a, you know, uh, you know, all these crazy amenities. And the last amenity they asked for was like a bowl of all green M&Ms. And so there's the joke of like, Oh, when you're doing the artist writer, Oh, what do you want? The you know, bowl of green M&Ms. Um, and uh, a roadie told me the story of that, um, which is that, Basically, it was for a band, let's say for argument's sake, it's Van Halen. And they had a lot of pyrotechnics and all kinds of craziness, you know, every time they would do their show. So when they would get to a new venue, because they're like, you know, in, you know, six venues a week, um, the first thing they would do is go to their dressing room and see if there was that bowl of green M&Ms. Because that, that's the very last item on the rider. And they know that if they saw that bowl of green M&Ms, then everything else was going to be fine. That means that they could trust the pyrotechnics, they could trust the lighting, they could trust, you know, the sound. But if they didn't see it, that was their signal of, oh, hell, we got to kind of start from the ground up and double and triple check everything to make sure it's okay. So, so um, attention to detail. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. And I, I, this is a quick aside, but do you remember a commercial for M&M's in the probably the 80s? Okay. And it's a baseball team. Was I in it? Um, I, maybe. <laughs> it was like a little league team. Nope, nope, okay. no, no fat kids in the national okay. M&M commercials. It's a trick question. It could, it could have been. I guess it was a team of uh, like little leaguers. Okay, and they're in the game, and like the ki- two kids are like, you know, if you get a red one, it's a single, and if it's an orange one, it's a double. I kind of remember that. And the green was always the home run. Really, which begged the question: Why would you eat any M M&M and M besides a green M M&M and M before you went up to bat? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's like a fist fight in the back or something. Like a fist fight. Maybe there's only like four green M and M's in yeah. there. I don't know, man. There's a lot of levels to this, dude. 
I don't know. I wasn't playing baseball. Okay, I was just eating all the M and M's. I was shit. too. I was eating them all just to like, just so I had like in storage a single, a double, a triple, a home run, <laughs> depending on what I needed for that specific game. So I was probably too busy scarfing the M and M's to really. You did, know, you, did you play Valley Youth Sports? Uh, no, you know, no. Well, I the only Valley sports that I played. Oh, I, it was interesting. Prior to high school, in high school, so I got into sports because you know I, I couldn't couldn't get work, so I had to figure something out. Um, but I, I played t-ball when I was a kid. But I was so uncoordinated that even though it was t-ball, basically, <laughs> I was actually thrown off the t-ball team of some weird Woodland Hills league uh, because my little fat hands. Every time the bat would hit the tee, you know, would hit the ball in the tee my hands for, were some, those little chubby hands would just release. I wouldn't, I couldn't get the time. I would release the bat <laughs> bef- like, you know, in preparation to run. And it would just go like a rocket right to the poor little kid standing where the pitcher stands. And I think I hit a kid once and they're like, Hey, look, look fat ass. This is maybe hot stick dog to the movies. Kid. Yeah, stick to the movies, kid. You little fatty. Yeah. So no, I wasn't. Did you? you I, I played t-ball in a few years of awkward baseball. I thought I was really good. Every year was the year I was going to make the all-star team. And looking back now, like remember talking to tell my dad, <laughs> I think I'm going to make the all-star team. And like him being like, sure, kiddo. Like how delusional I was. Wow, man. Yeah. That's sad. This is but sad. I think this is the year. This is, uh, yeah, of course. I, I think. I'm truly, voting for you for the team. For Northridge uh, Bantam All-Stars. The Bantam All-Stars. I don't know where the word Bantam came from. I like it. It's like a middle, it's like, a, is that bigger than a middleweight or smaller than a middleweight? I don't know. I don't know, dude. Oh, I know. I don't know. That was a fun tangent, just, though. Uh, just uh, beats me. Any other Valley tangents? Uh, let's see. Um, uh, uh, Topanga Plaza. That's weird. Oh. Huh? Oh. Remember when they had an ice skating rink? Yeah, that was cool. Oh, did it? Yeah. I was more of a Northridge Mall. Oh, an aristocrat. Well, I'm sorry. Didn't go to Granada Hills with John Elway or whatever. John Elway went to Granada Hills, didn't he? He did. I mean, but so you're being a little snobbish about that. At least 20 years before me. Well, you know, Chunk from Goonies went to Taft. Uh, apparently, the that. kid who played the younger son on uh, A Christmas Story went to my high school. Also, whatever. Whoever invented Uber apparently was a grade older than me. No way. Yeah. At Granada? At Granada. Jeez. I just heard that a couple of days ago. Fucking Granada's the worst. Granada's for the, for the record, I was almost late for this recording because my Uber driver couldn't figure out where to pick me. You aren't connected? You couldn't call the dude and be like, hey, no. man. Where's my... It's Jamie. I don't remember think he's dealing with that. Class of 90, whatever. Remember me? No. 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 Can't do that. No. Can't do it. No. So, okay. Dealmakers and commandments. Um, we hit that. Yeah. Um, we talked about um, delis. Yeah. Talked about delis. That was good. Um, top five moments at the Hollywood Improv. Oh, boy. I do love the Improv. I love the improv. I wasn't fishing. No, no, I do. I mean, you know this. You know this, man. Um, but actually, why don't you talk about the improv? And just in general, I guess, in, from a networking perspective of in the comedy world. Sure. In, including other places like where this kind of stuff goes down. Well, you got Eddie. You got Eddie. You got Eddie Burke, the bartender. Fast Eddie, man. He's the best, dude. Like, you win. You win. You have Eddie <laughs> as the bartender. And then everything else is like cherry on top of that Sunday. Maybe Chappelle comes in. Maybe Chris Rock comes in. Maybe Adam Sandler comes in. Who gives a shit? You got Eddie, man. Yep. So you have the Sunday. That's just the cherry on top of the of the Sunday. That's of awesomeness. Um, you know, I love the improv. Um, I love kind of the layout of it. Uh, I just love the vibe. Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, it's always. I don't know. It just kind of felt. It's just. It's just. You know. You don't. You don't. I think actually. I kind of go back to that idea that I was speaking about earlier. That like 
part of the fun of show business is that everyone's interesting. <laughs> and what I like hanging out at the improv is, you know, there'll be great shows and then just hanging out at the bar. Everyone's cool. You know, everyone's going to have a story, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's, you know, you know, a happy story or a sad story, whatever. Um, it, and it's going to be kind of, you know, it, it's, it's not always an adventure, but it can easily oh, yeah. <laughs> turn into one. You know what I mean? It's kind of a great, like, beginning place and, and, and finishing or perhaps finishing place, depending on, on what's going on. So <laughs> yeah, man, I don't know. I just, I, I have a real, I just have a real affection for this place, you know, like, and it's, it's funny. It's been very important for me, um, you know, as a lawyer and as kind of a person in comedy and it's, you know, a great place to see my clients or meet new clients. And they have Eddie. Do you guys, did I mention that you have Eddie coolest bartender in town? No, dude. you didn't mention that. He's the coolest. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it is a very insular community in comedy. And and I bring it up, A, because the old bar is right in front of us. Yeah, And you man. marveled at that when you walked in. Oh, yeah, that's great. But also, you know, and obviously being the booker here, put me in a different position of be, than being a comic. But, you know, remembering the few times I came here before I ever worked here, and it can be very overwhelming. Sure. So do are you ever approached by young comics that are like, yeah. I don't know what they'd be like. Well, yeah, I mean, the... I guess this is a good yeah. place for you. Any advice that you have for, I guess not even young comics, but for young artists. Sure. Well, the first thing is buy, <laughs> buy my book, The Dealmaker's Ten Commandments. I mean, literally it's, you know, you know, Liz Taylor, she bought it back in the day. Clark Gable. Big fan. He sucked he, um, before the book. He wrote in the, <laughs> the flap. Lady Gaga, Lady whatever, before my book, buying it, reading it, reading it again, you know, uh, you know, and some listen to the audible. They liked my voice, my voice. I read and so it. So they would just go to audible.com. Oh, actually, you're going to go to Amazon and download it. Got it. And, and, uh, you know, or the, or the Kindle, some like it on their, on their little pads. Um, no, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think, I think, you know, just, just, just know going into it that the business, <laughs> the business is designed to break your heart. The business is designed to be challenging, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of the journey of being an artist, you know, um, ultimately, you know, you have to be, you know, ultimately you're the most important critic. You know what I mean? Ultimately you have to be able to kind of brush out all of the influences, you know, of people around you, whether it's your reps or whether it's, you know, frenemies or friends or lovers or family or whatever. And, you know, ask yourself, you know, what do I want? What's meaningful to me? Like, what do I think? Um, and, you know, when you can really, you know, kind of satisfy yourself as an artist, like that's, that's a strong, you know, place to start from, you know? Do you feel, I mean, you're, you're such a creative artistic person. As, do you find that in, in your entertainment lawyering? Yeah. Is that the official term? For sure. It? Yeah, I think so. Um, do you have the opportunity to be creative and artistic in the way you like, or do you have other outlets for that? Um, well, there's the crying, you know, there's the crying because <laughs> people think there's one way to do it. There's not, there's a lot of, you know, there's the, there's well, rocking, there's, there's swaying. Yes. Yeah, weeping. Uh, you know what? No, no, thank you. That's very kind. Um, you know, it's interesting for me, uh, you know, uh, you know, writing this book has been really cool. Um, you know, I love philosophy. I love, you know, and in the, and I love quotes. So like in the book, I quote Mencken and, you know, Nietzsche and, uh, you know, Machiavelli and, and, you know, all kinds of, you know, Socrates, whatever, you know, like, like, Eddie Burke. I, uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. A great philosopher and a great bartender and great actor, very talented yep. actor yes. as well. Uh, you got to check him out online. Very talented. Um, very talented comedic actor. 
which is harder to do than just regular acting. Um, I think, uh, so, I mean, for me, uh, you know, kind of when I went to, when I went to college, you know, kind of philosophy and, you know, political science and stuff like that. Is that what you studied? Uh, well, it's funny. I was, I, I was very involved in politics at Berkeley for undergraduate. I was student body president. Um, yeah, sorry. Just drop that. Yeah. Whatever. No <laughs> you gotta drop deal. that. Chunk for president. Actually it was chunk for president. That was my, my slogan. Landslide. Of course. Landslide. Of victory. course. Remind us of anything that's happening now. Oh, I didn't know. Anybody? Who do you and, go up against? Uh, oh, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was serious political kids. Um, and they had pamphlets that were very serious and awesome, you know, about like, this is how I feel about these political issues. And, you know, kids would walk by the main, uh, you know, plaza, Sprawl Plaza, and these guys would, you know, hand out their flyers and nobody wanted the flyers. Everyone would run the other way. And I innovated the system. I was like, nobody wants flyers, but you know what people want? What do people want? Candy. Boom. Green they want, M&M's. They would get green M&M's. And I would lick them because that would make it luckier. And I'd stick it right to their face. No, that's not what I would do. Um, I had lollipops, uh, you know, just cheap lollipops. And I had little stickers on it that said, junk for president. And I passed out... Uh, thousands of lollipops to the 30,000 uh, students of Berkeley at the time. And it was a landslide. So if you want to get into politics, you got to get by a lot of lollipops. Did you have pictures of Chunk from Goonies? I wasn't that high tech, man. It was, you know, I was just little weird round stickers that Chunk for president. You know, I couldn't go high tech. I wasn't made of money. I couldn't have crazy stuff just like that. pictures? Yeah, you know, no, no they pictures. They photocopy machines I, back then. They didn't, man. They didn't. We did it by hand. I'm older than you, Jamie. But three years, two years even. Yeah, and technology changes, buddy. Have you ever seen the iPhone 3? What is that? It's right. dumb. That's just, they mm-hmm. just made that. Anyways, um, yes. So my creative outlet, uh, I think writing this book was great. Um, I'll write articles, you know, about political stuff or business stuff for like Huffington Post and CNBC and stuff like that. So I enjoy that element of it, you know. Um, so, so for me, that's kind of my fun creative outlet. And you know what? It's, you know, I'm in awe of my clients. It's great to help a great director, you know, come up with a great deal so that they have the creative control to make a cool movie or to help, a, you know, a comic, you know, uh, you know, have enough power in a project so they can make a television show that comports with their worldview. So, um, yeah, man, I think for me, I, I enjoy the writing. So I think that's the creative outlet. I love it. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, baby. Truly, this has been at Weiler's. Easy, well, Weiler's. Yeah, I gotta check that out. It's pretty good. Check it out. Have a pickle. Have a pickle. Have a pickle. Uh, interestingly enough, at Harry Potter World today, you ate a pickle. No, but my my nephew is a huge pickle guy. <laughs> a magic pickle. <laughs> they didn't have pickles. I, I, have a, I <laughs> no, I don't even have to do that. Wait, 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 wait. Does pickles have anything to do with this, or no? Or is this what's going on? My nephew loves pickles. Okay, got it. Nephew loves pickles. Okay, enough, enough that it was like uh, we should find one. Yeah, and Makes we sense. asked enough people and did enough. We even googled it. Like you can't find. Apparently, not Berry Farm is known for their pickles, according really? to yeah. And that's why it's the it's the least attended theme park in all of theme parkdom, man. Have you ever thought about that? It's, it's a berry farm. It's kind of, I mean, as a kid growing up, it was like a big theme park in Southern California. Well, yeah, like the There's jelly. Berry farm. I, do they great. still make Knott's jelly? That was always really good. Yeah. Berry, berry jelly. It's their, it's their jam. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I get it. I get it. It's your, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, let's, pickles. Um, why don't we wrap this up? 
with one last thing, maybe sure. something from the book that could be inspiring. And I think it's important to note that if you are an artist, you are a deal maker. You know, yeah. I guess if you're a human to some extent, you you are a deal maker. So this book is for everyone. Um, would you say that? Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say kind of. I mean, I guess to wrap it up, I mean, you know, I think there's that idea that you know, success is life on your own terms. And, and I think that that is success. So, so the idea of the book is to help you figure out what those terms are and then, uh, how to, how to get them. So what would be one more, one final parting, uh, guiding principle to inspire the fuck out of everyone that's listening right now? Um, well, uh, I would say, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to get heavy. Uh, it's heed Nietzsche's warning. Um, you know, show business is rough. Uh, all business is rough. Um, and, you know, Nietzsche said, uh, beware when fighting monsters, you don't become one. And throughout this business, whether, you know, you know, whether you're up or whether you're down, um, there's going to be a lot of fighting and you're going to be fighting with monsters and you're going to have to do some tough stuff. So, you know, being able to kind of go through that process and still, you know, keep your soul and your integrity uh, is challenging and kind of the most important thing. I love it. By the way, I have so much more confidence when I'm holding a book. I yeah, don't know if you've good. noticed, but you I'm look good holding up. that book, dude. I feel like we're on TV and I'm showing it to the camera. Yeah. Hey, everybody! It's Check a very out the book. sweet cover. Is Thank that the you. City of Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> you like that? Love it. It's black and white. It's pretty badass. Like, it's got your mug on the back. Yeah, it's good looking. Well, this has been a sincere pleasure. Thank you, sir. I say a thing at the end of every show, and I usually print it out. I'm going to see if I can remember off the top of my head. Um. Be a professional. It ends with be cool as fuck. What's in between? Um, don't look at a pickle at yeah, Harry Potter because they don't have them there. Maybe I should add that in. No. Be, be undeniable. Okay. This is like the 36 or 37. Like, you I should gotta know get this, this down, dude. Like this is bad. Yeah. But also this is a peek beyond the curtain. You know, we're not infallible. I think you think that I'm perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners. Uh, but this is really shocking. And, um, but yeah, don't be, be, be undeniable. Um, be cool as fuck always, um, be a professional. And, um, there's one more, uh, I might even edit it in later. Anyway, Jeff, you, Jeff, you, Jeff, you be going. <laughs> oh, Jamie, you, <laughs> um, thanks for joining me. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. And then can, where can people find you online? Oh yeah, that's important. Uh, so I'm on the old yield Twitter at uh, Jeff underscore B underscore Cohen. Um, also on uh, Facebook at uh, Jeff B. Cohen Esquire and also LinkedIn at uh, Jeff B. Cohen Esquire. Beautiful. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, sir. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.